Let's open up to Genesis 25 today. And good job, uh, Suzanne, for doing your homework last week. You looked up the wells. and I always say that you know, good teaching is not filling a pail, it's lighting a fire. And uh, I'm filling a pail meaning like I'm not just trying to fill your brains with information, but rather I'm trying to inspire you to go seek out more. And that's the essence of good teaching. So I feel like I accomplished that this week, thank you, or last week. So let's jump right into it. We got some ground to cover here at Genesis 25. We got a lot of good things happening, a lot of bad things happening, sad things. Genesis 25. Avraham took another wife. Now, Sarah's, she's deceased, right? He took another wife whose name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Yokshan, Medan, Midian, Yishbach, and Shuach. Yokshan fathered Shiva and Didan. And the sons of Dedan were the Ashurim, the Tushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Aipha, Aifer, Hanuch, Avida, and Elda'ah. All these were descendants of Keturah. Avra, well, let's pause here. When was the last time we saw another woman other than Sarah come into Avraham's life? Hagar. Did good things come of it or bad things come of it? Yeah, initially, not good things. A lot of strife, um, a lot of division within the household. And we're going to see that some of these people, some of the descendants of these people, are, are, are going to, um, ultimately, they're going to bring God glory. Nothing is without his, outside of his sovereignty and his control, but they're going to cause some problems as we see through the, the, the narrative of Genesis and Exodus. Let's keep going to verse 5. Avraham gave everything he owned to Yitzhak, Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, he made grants while he was still living and sent them off to the east, which is always a direction of what? Exile. exile. Good. You guys are paying attention listening. They're, he's exiling them, so to speak. And he sent them to the land of Kedem, which Kedem literally means the place of the east. could also be translated like the ancient land. Away from Yitzchak, his son. We sing a prayer when we're putting the Torah scroll back into the ark. We sing the prayer, um, K-K-K-K-K-Dim. Like that's, bring us back as of the old time. Bring us back as of the days of old, of the ancient times, is what we're praying there when we said that. K-Dim means the, 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 the land of the east or ancient times. Verse 7. Now, let me ask this question before we continue to verse 7, before I get too, head, too far ahead of myself. Why do you think he's sending these sons away and not keeping them close to him like he did Isaac? Yeah, have you guys ever seen any brothers together? How many, how many of you fought with your brother? Yeah, right? There's only two brothers in the Bible that we know of that never quarreled with each other. Can anybody name them? Yeshua and James, perhaps, yeah. It's a, we actually say every Friday night over our sons, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Yeah. Because they're the only two brothers that, as far as we know, maybe with the exception of James and, and Yeshua, that never quarreled. These brothers are going to be quarrelsome, probably. He's sending them away. But why else, do you think? Why else? Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to get into bloodlines. <laughs> I want to stay away from bloodlines. I want to stay away from, and here's why, is because God so loved the world. 
that he gave his only begotten son, right? Here's what I think, is it's all about associations. And brothers associate one, with one another, and they influence each other. I was just saying the other day how Noah went through certain phases as a boy that Micah, my youngest, completely skipped and went to exactly what Noah, someone who is three times his age, is doing and is into. He just skipped all of that. Brothers have strong influence over each other. And I think maybe the answer to this question would probably be um, he's trying to disassociate his, these, these, these sons who, who, are, who are not the sons of promise, so to speak, but they are his sons, but he's trying to disassociate with, them, with the son that he knows is the son of promise. Does that make sense? So it's kind of about like, yeah, like kind of like not, not bloodlines per se, but it's um, this, is, this is the son of the, the wife that was promised to me and was, was told she would, be the bear, she would bear many nations. And, and, but these sons are the sons of the wives that weren't part of that initial promise. Perhaps, yeah, set apart, more set apart. Yeah, I like that, I like that. Verse 7, let's keep going. This is how long Abraham lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last, dying at a ripe old age. An old man full of years. And then it says that he was Asaf el-Amiv. He was gathered to his Amiv, his people. He was gathered to his people. It's an interesting phrase, and we're going to see it pop up more and more. Um, and we'll, we'll jump back to that phrase in just a second. Yitzchak and Yishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah with Sarah, right? In the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittai, by Mamre. The field which Avraham purchased from the sons of Chetz. Avraham was buried there with Sarah, Sarah, his wife. And after Avraham died, God blessed Yitzchak, his son, and Yitzchak lived near Be'er, Lachai, Ro'i. So let's ask this question now that Abraham has passed. Did Abraham receive a lot of blessing, a lot of, a lot of promises, didn't he? What were some of the promises that Abraham received and was told? Yeah, he would possess the land. Yeah, sands and stars, right? Did he ever see either of those in his lifetime? He didn't. And that's a lesson there for us is that God will assure you of things or make promises to you, maybe specifically in his word, and you may not see the full fruition of those promises in your lifetime, but know that God keeps his promises. And we're going to see that. It says in, in later on in the book, doesn't it say that every nation, every tongue, every tribe, right? That kind of stuff. So let's keep going. Verse 12. Here is the genealogy, the toldot of Yishmael, Avraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian woman, bore to Avraham. These are the names of the sons of Yishmael, listed in the order of their birth. The firstborn of Yishmael was Navayot, followed by Kedar, Adbael, Mivsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Yatur, Nafish, and Kedma. These are the sons of Yishmael and all their names according to their settlements and their camps, 12 tribal rulers. And this is how long Yishmael lived, 137 years. And then he breathed his last, he died, and then it says right here, um, uh, Asaf Amiv, Asaf El Amiv. He was gathered to his people. This phrase is interesting. Go to uh, Genesis thirty-five twenty-nine, real quick. Genesis thirty-five twenty-nine. You know, it's interesting. A lot of translations translate that as gathered to his father. Mm. But as I hear you, Amiv is people. Word, people. Genesis thirty-five twenty-nine. It says Yitzchak lived to be one hundred and eighty years old. Then he breathed his last. He died, and then he was. 
Asaf el Amiv. He was gathered unto his people. Um, this, this phrase is a very loaded phrase, and it speaks to one of the very first, if not the very first time we see the, the, the author of Genesis speaking to what we now call the afterlife and what goes on after we die. And this is a question that has plagued humanity for thousands and thousands of years. What happens when we die? And people will sometimes come to me and ask that question as if I know. I'm like, I don't know, I've never died. There are people that have died and they have come back to life and we maybe have a window through them as to what happens when we die. There are people that from the Bible try to extrapolate what happens to us when we die. There's some that would say, you know, there's different schools of thought. Some would say that as soon as we die, we're fully conscious and present in heaven. Then there are some that would say, well, when we die, we enter a half conscious state and we're in kind of this holding pattern until the resurrection of the second coming. Some would say, another, another school of thought would say that when we die, we're zero conscious and we're asleep, so to speak. And the second coming at the resurrection of the dead, we fully regain consciousness. Now you might be thinking, like, where do you fall, Gabe? I want you to do your research, and I want you to determine where you fall with that, and pray about it if it's a question that bothers you, and you really want the answer to it. But here's the thing. I look at the Bible. If the Bible, and the God of the Bible, was really, really obsessed with making sure we know what happens to us when we die, it would be explicit in the text, wouldn't it? Therefore, I have to deduce that this is not a point over which we should divide. It is not a point of salvation. It's something that we can, you know, speculate about, something we can study out, but it's nothing that you should hang your entire faith on and say, this is, this is the answer. This is the, the, the catch-all of what I believe about the afterlife. And therefore, you should believe like I do. This is something that we can tolerate differences with each other amongst ourselves. Now, there are some big fundamentals in our faith that, yeah, we don't budge on that. But what, what happens to us when we die is nothing that you should divide over and belittle each other over because we're going to be dead. <laughs> it won't matter a whole lot. Here's, here's the key, though, is we believe in the resurrection of the dead, right? If, if, you, if you stand firm on that, that's awesome. Hang in there. It's coming. And it says, um, Yishmael's sons lived between Havilah and Shur near, near Egypt as you go toward Ashur. He settled near all his kinsmen. Oh, by the way, there's another school of thought, like especially within some Orthodox Jewish communities, and uh, uh, they call it transmigration, basically reincarnation. Um, so I would say that's way out in left field, but um, that, that is a thing. Uh, verse 19. Did you have a question? Yes. They say they rise. How about those that get cremated? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. a question. Yeah, people, people, that's a very good question. Thank you, Marvin. Uh, Marvin asks, what happens when people get cremated? Are they still able to be resurrected from the dead? And now we serve a God who took the dust of the earth and made who? Adam. Okay, I'll leave it there. Verse 19. Here is the toldot of Yitzchak, Abraham's son. Now, this, son, this word toldot is a very loaded term as well. And I, I spoke, um, especially during our teaching series through Ruth, about how many times this word is misspelled until we get to Ruth chapter 4. It's spelled correctly up until the fall of man, and then it's misspelled a bunch of times until we get to Ruth chapter 4, verse 8. Um, but we don't have time to rehash all that right now. But Avraham fathered Yitzchak, and Yitzchak was 40 years old when he took Rivka, the daughter of Bethuel, 
the Arami from Padan Aram. We talked about where that is last week, right? That'd be modern day Syria in between the, the, the Tigris and the Euphrates. The sister of Lavan, the Arami, to be his wife. And Yitzchak, what did he do? He Atar. He prayed. Now your translations say prayed. And, and that's not the best translation because the, the Hebrew word for prayer is tefillah. And treated, yeah, I don't know what that means really either. It's kind of lost. Atar is like to press, press in and strive toward a goal. Press in and strive towards a goal. It's something that's um, like nagging, nagging. Husbands, do not look at your wives. Don't do it. It's, it's atar, to press in and strive towards a goal. Mine says and pleaded. Pleaded, yeah, I like that, I like that. But he prayed to Adonai on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And Adonai, he atar his plea. He pressed in and, and, and moved toward that goal as well. Um, and no, it doesn't like Atari, the Japanese game console. It's not, it's not that. Although they actually mean similar things, Atari and Atari. Um, <laughs> he prayed and Rivka became pregnant. Verse 22, the children fought with each other inside her so much that she said, if it's going to be like this, why go on living? That, that word that is there for fought between them is ratzatz, ratzatz. And it's used, go to Isaiah 42, verse 3, Isaiah 42, 3. Isaiah 42, 3. I'm going to show you how it's used real fast. Isaiah 42, verse 3. And... It says that he will not crush a broken reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. And that word there, crush, is ratzatz. Go with me to uh, Deuteronomy 28.33. Deuteronomy 28.33. Last book of the Torah, Deuteronomy 28.33. He says, a nation unknown to you, if you don't obey all the commandments of the Torah, God's telling Israel, they will eat the fruit of your land and your, uh, and, and, and what your eyes, uh, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong spot. They will eat the fruit of your land and labor. Yes, you will be continually ratsats and crushed till you go crazy from what you have seen. So go back with me to Genesis 25 now. It says, verse 22, the children ratsats. Literally, they were like bruising and crushing and oppressing each other inside the womb. It's not just a simple like they fought with each other. That's why it's so important to dig into the original language and kind of see how is this word used elsewhere? Because sometimes translators, they soften, they soften these words a little bit and the meaning of them. And they did it so much that he said, if, I, if it's like this, why can I go on living? How can I go on living? So she, Darash, Adonai. She searched out. That's where we get that word midrash. A midrash is a searching out of something. So she searched out Adonai. And he answered her. There are two goyim in your womb. There's two nations in your womb. And from birth, they will be two rival peoples. One of these people will be Amatz than the other. Amatz, how many of you have stronger? Yeah, go with me to Joshua 1 6. 
Joshua, it's not a great translation. Joshua 1.6, amatz. We're looking to see how this word is used here. Joshua 1.6. And actually 1.6-9. Be uh, strong. Be amatz. For you will cause this people to inherit the land I swore to their fathers I would give them. Only be strong and be very amatz and taking care to follow all the Torah, which Moses, my servant, ordered you to follow. So amatz, how many of you have courageous? Yes. How many of you have bold? Yeah, I think it's a better translation. And it says back up to Genesis 25, one of these people will be more courageous than the other and the older will serve the younger. Verse 24, when the time came for her delivery, there were tomim in her womb. This is where we get the word, uh, the name Thomas. Thomas, anybody here named Thomas? I don't know if we have a Thomas. Thomas is also the name of one of Yeshua's disciples, except it wasn't his name. It was just a nickname. Remember Thomas? We call him Doubting Thomas. He was called Thomas the Twin. Yeah, Thomas the Twin. Some manuscripts of the New Testament refer to him as Thomas the Twin. Um, it'll use, like John uses uh, the Greek word didymus or twin. That's how it refers to him. So Thomas wasn't even his name. What was his name? No one knows for sure what Thomas's name was. He's just become the doubting twin. But that's where we get it. It's actually a, a derivative of a Hebrew word tom, or tom, which means something that looks like something else. But these, wound, these, these twins were in her womb. But it's interesting because they didn't look like each other, did they? Looked very different. In verse 25, the first came out and he was admoni. He was red. Adam, he was adom. Adom means red. And it's also connected to Adam, the, the first man, Adam. First man was made of the Adama, the ground. And he had through his veins this stuff called dam. You see all the different plays on words there? And that stuff, that dam in his veins just happened to be adoma, adom, red. And so now we get to this story and he's saying that he came out looking like adom, red all over. He's like a man's man. He's like man of the earth. Probably smelled like Old Spice. <laughs> and he's covered all over with hair, like a coat. So they named him fully formed, or completed. Or it comes from the root asa, which means like it is. It's done. Asa. We sing it in one of the prayers up there, I think during the Vishamru. Asa, it is. And it shall come to pass. One from new moon to another one. It, it's done. There is asav. He's completed. Um, I remember I was like 35 years old before I could grow a beard. I'm like, man, I'm kind of jealous of that. Some of you were born and you had like a little, little mustache above your lip there. But picture this guy. He's just like a man's man. He's covered with hair like a coat. So they named him completely formed. I think we should go back to naming kids that way. Like, wow, you're fully formed. You're a sav. You're done. Yeah. But then his brother emerged with his hand holding Esav's Ekev. So he was called Yaakov, he who catches by the heel. You see, that, again, they named him based on this like, immediate action. Let's name him Ekev, the heel grabber. 
So every time his mother like called him in for supper, hey, uh, fully formed and heel grabber, come on in, it's time to eat. <laughs> so Yitzchak was 60 years old when she bore them. And the boys became gadol. They became great or, or, or like fully grown. And Esav, this, the fully formed one, he became a skillful, skillful uh, Sa'id. Sa'id. That's even a, a very popular name in Arabic countries is Sa'id. Sa'id. It means a hunter. A hunter. An outdoorsman. Now, let me ask you a question. When was the last time that we saw someone as a skillful hunter? Go to Genesis 10, verse 9. Go way back to Genesis 10. Because we're supposed to begin to see a juxtaposition forming here. Genesis 10, 9. It says, let's go to 10.8, Genesis 10.8. Cush father Nimrod, who was the first powerful ruler on earth. That means that he was a tyrant. He was a mighty Sa'id. He was a mighty hunter before Adonai. And this is why people say like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Adonai. So the very next time we see someone being a mighty hunter and a great powerful man is Esav. Now, we know, obviously, through, through the book of Genesis that Nimrod eventually builds the city of Babel. Babel and through uh, like the writings of Josephus, we come to learn that he was perhaps involved with the construction and the architect, the great architect of the Tower of Babel. He was a great rebel, tyrant, um, and a hunter. Some people will say that that word hunter there is actually a hunter and an oppressor of humans. It's interesting. The writer, the author of Genesis, Moses, is saying as he's writing these things down, guys, Esau is like Nimrod. Now, how do you think he's going to compare? Who, who do you think he's going to compare uh, Yaakov to? Let's find out. It says, then his, um, uh, Esau became a skilled hunt, an outdoorsman, while Yaakov was an Ishtam who stayed in the Ohelim. Now, when was the last time that we saw a man that was Tom, pure, a pure man, a perfect, a blameless man? Tamim means something that's pure or whole. Go to Genesis 6, 9. Genesis 6, 9. And Ishtam. Genesis 6, 9. Here is the history of Noah. In his generation, Noah was a Sadiq. And he was a man that was tamim. He was tam. He was pure. You see, Moses, is, as he's writing this, is saying, I want you guys to see a difference between Esav and Yaakov. One is a man that is like a man's man, that is taking things by force, that is becoming a skillful hunter, that's kind of a tyrant like Nimrod. And then he's saying Yaakov, however, was, was he wasn't, my translation says quiet. That's, he was an ishtam. He was a pure-hearted man who dwelt in tents. He embraced the nomadic lifestyle. But the, the phrase there, dwelt in the ohalim, the tents, is a euphemism, not that he just like never left his tent, like, oh, I don't want to go outside today. But rather, to dwell in the tents means you're a student of the word. You're a student of the righteous decrees that have been handed down generation after generation that were then codified into what we now call the Torah. So he was... He was someone who's passing the righteous torch down to the next generation. And he's studying these precepts that were likely given to him from Noah, from Avraham, from Adam. And he's 
he's internalizing these precepts in the tent, so to speak. Verse 28, Yitzhak favored Esav because he had a taste for game. That's not a very good uh, <laughs> motivation there, huh? It's like, I love this son more because he can, uh, he can hit the ball better or whatever. It's like kind of messed up, right? Whereas Rivka favored Yaakov. Verse 29. One day when Yaakov had cooked some stew, Esav came in from the open country and he was like nearly about to collapse and die and faint. And he said to Yaakov, please let me gulp down some of that Adom, that Adom stuff, that red stuff. I'm exhausted. This is probably like red lentil stew, which in the Middle Eastern world and even into Southern Europe, lentils are so common. It's like rice in Asia. It's like, you know, pennies, a dozen kind of, it's like very cheap food. And, and we're supposed to understand that, that he's cooking this lentil stew and it's basically like he's just making a pot of rice, like just this plain old white rice. And he runs in, he's so hungry that he just looks at this, this lentil stew and he's like, I want that. He's a man who just like takes by force. And, and that is why he's called Edom to this day, red to this day. So Yaakov answered, first, sell me the rights of the bakar, of the firstborn. So is Yaakov doing something wrong here? What do y'all think? Is he being unethical here? Yes and no. He's being an opportunist, isn't he? But Yaakov is looking at a man who already cares nothing about the birthright and knows that I am the rightful recipient of that bakar, of that firstborn uh, birthright. I care more about the affairs of my father's household than this skillful hunter who rarely comes home even to eat. And now you've got to remember that the, the firstborn, the bakar, the rights of the firstborn it's a big responsibility. You would have to deal with all the affairs of your family, like the burial and the, and the business affairs and everything else, upon the death of your father, but you would then get a double inheritance from your father's wealth. And we even have that kind of system today that we have what's called an, an executor of a will, an executor of an estate or a trust or a will. And sometimes if you execute someone's will and you are the executor of that will, there is an additional um, percentage that goes to you from the inheritance for taking care of that. It might not be double, but back in those days, it would likely have been double, but it would have been a big responsibility. And he says, look, I'm about to die. And, and said Esau, what use to me are my rights as the bakar? Wow, you see how flippant he is with these rights. He's willing to hand them over for a pot of lentil stew. He doesn't care about his father and his mother. And Yaakov said, first, make a shiva, a, a, like an oath, a swear to me. So he made a shiva, an oath, and swore to him, thus selling the bakar to Yaakov. Now that's just one step. He's going to take it to the next step here in a couple chapters and actually get his father's firstborn blessing. We'll see, he, he's going to do something similar that was a little bit shady, but that ultimately he did deserve. Verse 34, then Yaakov gave him bread and lentil stew. 
And he ate and he drank. He got up and went on his way. And thus, Esau showed how little he valued his birthrights. Now, I want to back up before we wrap up Genesis 5 today and talk about, we just kind of hit the death of Abraham and then we just kept going. And it was like, wow, a huge, huge um, character in the Bible just passed away. And I want to go back and kind of unpackage him with just, you know, maybe 10 or 15 more minutes and talk about Avraham because I think it's worth just going through and, and kind of dissecting the character of Avraham a little bit. Because in Romans 4, 16, Paul says the promise comes by faith so that it may rest on grace and may be guaranteed to all of Avraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the Torah, but also to those who are just of the faith of Avraham. In other words, what Paul is saying is not only does the promise go to this physical seed of Avraham, but also those who are of the faith of the God of the Bible, the nations, the Gentiles, because Paul says he is father of us all. And in Galatians 6, verse, uh, uh, Galatians 6 through 9, he says, therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may rest on grace. It sounds a lot like Romans, right? And may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are given of the faith, who are of the faith of Abraham, for he's father of us all. So I want to talk about some key characteristics. I got one, two, three, four, um, five, six things I pulled out of the life of Abraham that I want to talk about and then have you guys share with me what you learned from Abraham and some characteristics and some qualities that you think we should emulate if he is the father of our faith and we are his children. Number one, he was hospitable. He was hospitable. When, when was he hospitable? When, remember the three visitors came to Abraham? And the legend says that he always kept his tent doors open and he would welcome guests in and feed them, right? But he always put people's concerns over his. And that's actually one of the, one of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 to be an elder over a congregation is that you are, the Greek, it's philozenos, kind to strangers. You have a brotherly love even to strangers. Hospitable. Now guys, there, there is areas of hospitality that you can share in your home. You can invite people into your home and be hospitable toward them in that way. Then there's going to be areas of hospitality and opportunities for hospitality in this setting here as well. When people come into this place into our corporate worship, you should be hospitable. And you guys do an excellent job at that. Um, a wonderful job. I'm very proud of all that you do to do that. But just remember that when you invite someone into your home to sit at your table or whatever the case is, or whenever they, they come in here to worship with us, that is a fallen human being and you are a fallen human being. They have baggage, they have hurt, they have stuff from their past, from their present, and from their future. And most people, when they walk in our door, or when they walk in the door of your home, they're going to put a smile on their face and they're going to be kind of moderately dressed up and they're going to look pretty good on the outside. But just remember that they're here seeking truth. And they're like someone who's kind of like, I don't know why I'm here. I'm, I'm not sure what this is even all about. I don't know what language you guys are praying and all this other stuff. Be hospitable to them. But remember, you and I and they will have stuff from their past, present, and future. And it's important to be patient with people in that. Number two, I think Abraham was honorable, very honorable in his interactions with those around him and his dealings with others. And can we say the same? Are we truthful in all things? Are we honest in all things in business dealings? 
It's another qualification of being an elder or overseer. In 1 Timothy 3, it says that an overseer must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. We should be people, when the community looks at us, they should say, oh, they're really honest. In his workplace, Patrick doesn't just sit there and just ride out the clock. He works hard. He is, man, he's, he's dedicated to his job. And it's a form of worship. I can see if, if everyone in this room right now started on Monday morning at their jobs with the mindset that when I go to work, I'm worshiping. What I do, when I turn a wrench or when I type something on the computer or when I put something on the shelf at a store, I am worshiping. Because you better believe that people are watching you. But we should be honorable in our interactions with others, just like Avraham was. We should also be careful in our long-term close associations, like Avraham was careful in his close and long-term associations. You guys remember that? There's a saying that goes, show me your friends and I will show you your future. It's very true. And uh, Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, he was very cautious about um, our foreign affairs. And he said, um, he was quoted as saying, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all, with all nations, but entangling alliances with none. I think that's an interesting quote because we should be friendly, we should do business, but entangling alliances with people that are not of like faith, including marriage, especially marriage, can get you in a lot of trouble. And your associations will dictate your future, your close associations. Now, Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people and not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. He's saying associate with them or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would, know, you, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even sit and eat with such a one. What Paul is saying there is go out into the world, but it's full of wickedness. Just be aware of that. But in terms of very close associations with people you call a brother or a sister, if they, if they take on that name, but they are rampant and they're unrepentant in their sin, he says don't even eat with them. Don't have a close association with them. Be very careful. He's, he actually says in verse 13, God judges those on the outside, but purge the evil person from among you. Because who we associate with long-term influences our patterns of behavior. And a question I want to throw out there for you guys is, do you influence, when you go out in this place, do you influence or are you influenced? Moving along, Avraham is someone who interceded for people, didn't he? Sodom and Gomorrah. He negotiated for the salvation of other people with God. That's huge. Sometimes we get into this place of condemnation and we say, oh, they're just lost. Whatever, write them off. Oh, this world, oh man. Or the transgender movement, oh, whatever. Just, oh. We should be interceding, right? We should have a deep love and concern. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 says, I urge you that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved 
and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Two more points I want to bring out about Avraham. Number, uh, I think I'm number five here. Obedience. Avraham was obedient, wasn't he? He was obedient, um, and at times he was disobedient, wasn't he? At times he dropped the ball. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, Yeshua says, you'll do what? You obey my commandments. If we're of the faith of Avraham, we will be obedient. To what? To God's commandments. Not man's commandments. Where there is the absence of God's commandments, there will be man's commandments. Be obedient to the word of God. And then lastly, a lesson I learned from the life of Abraham, and one of the biggest ones that is applicable to my life at times, is how to walk through discouragement and doubt and find ourselves stronger in our faith because of it. Abraham walked through a lot of doubt, didn't he? And a lot of discouragement. How many of you have ever walked through doubt and discouragement? Everyone should probably raise their hand, right? If Satan cannot bring a man of God down through scandal, using what I call, and my father used to call, the three G's, gold, girls, or glory, he will use those three G's to bring a man of God down. If he cannot be successful in those attempts to bring him down using those three G's, he will wage a war of attrition with discouragement and doubt. And I have been plagued in my past with doubt and discouragement. Just even, even doing what I do here, standing up here and leading people and teaching and, and exhorting and encouraging, there have been times where I've been so deeply plagued with discouragement. You have no idea. And if I can walk through that, so can you. Because we have these questions that plague us sometimes. Will my loved one ever be saved? Will my children ever come back to me and desire a relationship with me? Will I ever find a spouse? Why hasn't God healed me yet? What is the point of me even striving for my marriage? Will Gabe ever be quiet so we can eat lunch now? (laughs) Those are things that I know people in this room are grappling with. And I am as well, with you. But it is through our imperfections that God has shown to be perfect. And it's through our lack of faith that he can be found faithful, right? Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all who you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that you, uh, in me, you may have peace. Because in this world, you will have lots of trouble. But take to heart, I have overcome the world. I want you guys, if you struggle with discouragement or doubt right now, find verses like this and verses that are throughout the Psalms. Commit them to memory. Pray them daily, print them out, write them down, put them somewhere that you're very visible and overcome. Allow God to be victorious over your doubt and your discouragement. And in the end, in all things, in every situation, God will receive glory. Amen. Amen. Romans 8.28, we know the verse that he works all things together for good 
to, the, uh, to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Um, let me, before I pray over you, give you your homework assignment. That is to read Genesis 26 for the coming week. Study it out. Come with any questions you guys have. Let me close in prayer, and then we'll do just five minutes of, of questions and answers, and we'll jump into lunch. Abba, Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to teach your word. And may the words that I spoke today, may they um, plant deep in our hearts. May your word plant deep in our hearts. And may we experience renewal and encouragement and triumph over our enemy because of it. I thank you for the life of Avraham, who even though he was imperfect at times, he just simply trusted you. And now he is the father of many nations and his descendants are as numerous as the grains of sand. May we be found faithful as well. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen. Well, guys, let's take like five minutes and do question, answer, or something like that. Or maybe everybody's too hungry. Yeah, Jackie? Yes, go over the six points. Sure. Yeah, and I can, I can send this to you if you'd like. It's just a Google document that I have. But uh, that Avraham was hospitable, that he was honorable in his interactions and dealings with others. He was careful in his long-term close associations. He interceded for the salvation of others. He was obedient. And he walked through discouragement and doubts. Got it all? Cool. Any other questions? Anybody? Yeah, Jason. It's a really, really good question, yeah. and I associate with, mm-hmm. and, and I readily call ourselves Christians. Yeah. We are it described in the book of Acts, actually the most frequently used um, adjective to describe our movement are the Christians. Yeah. Let me repeat his question, that I've been told I should repeat questions. He's basically asking how close, how closely should he associate with, I should say, other Christians that don't walk this faith or not part of this faith or 
observe the Torah to a certain extent. And I would, I would say um, you should associate with them closely, very closely. Um, and that's going to fly in the face of what other teachers may tell you. I had lunch with a, a, somebody that got pastor this week, and I'm a great man of God, great heart. Um, I was edified and will continue to be edified by our friendship that is growing. Um, we don't see eye to eye on everything. But I know that he has a heart that loves the Lord. Um, he has a heart that has been circumcised. And whether or not he starts doing this and that and wearing that or not wearing it, that's not my... I can only model what I believe and be ready to give an account as to what I do it. There was a story, If remember, um, Joseph was in Egypt. And Joseph hadn't yet revealed his true identity to the Egyptians, nor to his brothers. As far as the Egyptians are concerned, they think that he's just another Egyptian ruler, a great, a, a great asset to the Egyptian empire, right? They don't know his origin story as a Hebrew shepherd, <laughs> as far as we know. But did Joseph save the Egyptians? Were they literally saved from a famine? Yes. yes, they were. When we get to a point, and I'm not speaking in condemnation or anything like that, when we get to a point where we say, I've got the answers, I'm, I, I'm in the truth, I'm worried that they're not saved because they're not seeing like I am. Whoa, back up, time out. Joseph still saved his brothers, literally. Now, when Joseph revealed to his brothers, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph, his brothers wept, first of all, because they were fearful. And then do you think the Egyptians in the room, after he walked out, were like, wait, 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 wait what? We know him as Zafnath Panea. We got full bellies because of Zafnath Panea. We did not die. We were saved because of him. Now, at that point, they're scratching their heads and they're like, okay, let's, let's learn more about our Savior who saved us. Don't ever begin to question the salvation of someone who's of a different sect of Christianity because they don't do what we do. That is not our job. We can associate with them and we should associate with them very closely. And I always say that in doing so, the truth gets exposed and the truth defends itself. Just model truth and be ready to give an account as to why you do. It's the best way to communicate it. But yeah, I hope that answers your question. I love, I love everyone because Yeshua loved everyone. And now if that brother that like I ate lunch with this past week, that pastor, if he came out that he's like struggling with this and he just like lavishes in it and he's, or he's not even struggling with it. He just, this is his lifestyle and it's a, a sexual sin or whatever. And, not, and I'm like, dude, no, you got to cut that out. And then come back the following. Oh man, no, I'm still, I mean, okay, no, I got to disassociate with you. You're, you're saying you're a brother, but you're in practicing this stuff greed or sexual immorality or, or drunk, drunkenness, like, okay, no, I can't do this. You know, and th there comes a point, yeah, where I have to disassociate it. But no, absolutely, associate all you can with people of different, of different sects of Christianity, of different faiths, <laughs> and, and allow the truth to defend itself. Be salt and be light. Absolutely. that answer your question? Yeah, I, I just would comment. I think I was speaking more of, like, the intimate closeness. Yeah, yeah. Because in one instance, I just throw it out there, and not to say that you're saying, 
That's kind of like a case-by-case situation. Yeah, if they're speaking authoritatively over someone and you're like, why, that's not true. Biblically speaking, that's not true. Um, you can look at it as a opportunity. Oh, yeah, he's saying, what about these people that are not speaking something that's untrue in an authoritative way over my children? Um, should I disassociate with them in that regard? Um, that could be possibly. Um, you might have some boundaries, yeah. But it could also be a great opportunity to apologetically train your children. And to say, well, let's talk about that. Let's sit down and let's, let's study it out. And actually equip them to be able to under, better understand why you believe what you believe and articulate that. So, yeah, I'd say it's a case-by-case thing and probably something you really need to be, be prayerful about for sure. But, well, guys, you're hungry. Yeah. <laughs> let's pray. Thank you so much for your great questions and everything. And let's uh, say the blessing over the fruit of the vine and, and the bread today.